It's ten times the terror. Hello and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. Not okay. Hello and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. This is Paul Leggett. I'm here by myself today, and I'm going to share some personal thoughts. I've been asked the question more than once uh, why and how I got interested in horror films, and especially uh, in my role as a as a minister. The fact is, the two are very closely connected, and uh, there's a lot of ministers who are fans of horror films. But let me just go back to the beginning here. What is it about horror films or horror stories, for that matter, that compel our interest? And I think uh, there's a lot of very good reasons for that. And uh, there's some very important religious reasons as well. Well, my exposure to so-called horror films really came about through several sources, including comic books, uh, movies, and the Bible. Put those all together. In the uh, early 1950s, we talked about this in one of our previous uh, encounters. There was great outrage outrage over horror comics, and they they were pretty much done away with by the end of 1954. And I was eight years old that year. I never really bought horror comics per se. Uh, we'll do another session sometime on EC, Educational Comics, which set these all up and, and created a huge cultural firestorm that uh, affected even John F. Kennedy's political career. But let me just go back to my, my own personal encounter with this and why I, I find horror films um, to be both uh, very affirming, very powerful, very positive, And when they're bad, they're just plain awful. So to begin with, my first encounter with with comic books and horror was not the Tales from the Crypts kind of series that EC Comics had. But back in um, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, there was a comic line called Classics Illustrated. And these were comic book versions of famous stories. And it was everything from the Three Musketeers to uh, Jane Eyre, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, all Huckleberry Finn, all kinds of things. And it wasn't the case that they would simply come out and then be removed after a certain period of time. They kept in, in circulation. And I, I think they ended up with publishing like 160 titles by the time they were done in the late 60s. Well, here's what I'm getting at. Classics Illustrated had a series of horror films, horror stories, horror stories. And they did not have a problem with the censorship issues that were going on in the rest of the industry because these were all classic stories. They weren't just made up out of whole cloth uh, for a a given comic book issue. No, these were great stories. Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, one of the first ones I ever saw was Frankenstein. Now, when I first saw these, these are pretty scary. And at the same time, though, they were kind of intriguing. My first exposure to horror films, oddly enough, came from a, a Christmas special at a local theater here in Montclair. 
the reason for it was it was a, a Christmas matinee. I think it was the Saturday before Christmas. The idea was to have the kids be able to go to something while parents could do last minute shopping or whatever else. So we think that was a great idea. We there were there were um, shorts, little rascals, uh, or really our gang, car- cartoons. But the feature they had, not surprisingly, was a Christmas Carol. And uh, in this case, this was the 1938 Hollywood version with Reginald Owen as as Scrooge. Well, this was scary for me. I think when I saw this, I was probably five, six years old. And what really scared me was the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And they had this whole montage of uh, barren trees and wind and fog and this uh, uh, very dark figure with no, you couldn't see the face because of a cow that covered it. Uh, Really spooky. And uh, that was scary for me. My next exposure, as far as I can recall, was uh, being over at my grandmother's house and uh, watching TV by myself, uh, making sure she wasn't watching either. And And I was watching a movie and it left an impression on me called the Mad Monster. And this starred Glenn Strange as a werewolf. Glenn Strange played the Frankenstein monster in the later Universal films, and also veteran actor George Zuko. But it was made by the producer's releasing company, which was like the real poverty row, cheapest of the cheapest uh, movies of that era, of the, of the 1930s and 40s. But this scared me. Uh, and I look at it today, it, it's laughable, but it it really got to me. Well, that did not uh, drag me that much into the whole realm of horror stories and, and, and films at that point. But now this is where the Bible comes in. Because in the Bible, I was really denoted the, the monsters that would appear in the Bible, as a Leviathan or a many-headed dragon. And there's a lot of biblical stories of Jesus encountering demons. And also there's the idea that uh, Satan, who's the chief of the demons, uh, would also pretend uh, to be a very positive figure. Um, The Apostle Paul writes that uh, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Well, somehow these exposures, Classics Illustrated, watching a few films that I found scary, Bible stories, got me to ask questions like uh, a little bit more about this. I read the comic book version of Frankenstein. I say again, that was able to be circulated. That was not one of these uh, titles that had to, because it was a classic story. And the comic book version followed the. Um, the actual novel very closely, much more so than than the movies did. Also, when I was uh, still in grade school, ABC station in New York came out with a, uh, a series called Shock Theater. And what they had was a whole bunch of Universal Studios horror films. And they would show these late at night uh, on weekends. And this was sort of enticing, you know, and they had started off with Dracula, Frankenstein, and a whole bunch of of other familiar ones. Uh, My first exposure to these 
it's kind of interesting, was uh, uh, the, it was the night they were showing a, a film called The Strange Case of Dr. Uh, Rx, which is not exactly a, a super familiar title, but it was one of these uh, kind of pseudo mystery horror things. And um, it happened to be that uh, my my parents would n- were not always at home because of their schedules, but uh, they had come home and it was it was late. Now it was this was already on, and I woke up hearing them in the house. So I've been thinking to myself, I'm gonna go down and take a look at this thing and see what the what the shock theater is really like. And I'm thinking I'm gonna see something really scary. And at this point, I've got both an approach avoidance uh, double response going on. Yeah, which is what you do with horror films. You cover your eyes and then you peek through your fingers, you know, to see what's going on. I turned on the TV, turned to Channel 7, and what I got was a comic relief scene with uh, racial overtones, which today, of course, is uh, far from acceptable. But this is back in the 1940s. But it was a, it was a, a comedy scene. And I'm thinking, what? What's the deal here? This is not, this isn't scary. This is it's just sort of silly, it's kind of stupid. And it's, it was like um, Ralphie in A Christmas Story when he's uh, trying to get the code from Little Orphan Annie and the, the, uh, get the secret message. And the message is, drink more Ovaltine. It's, it's just a sponsor's uh, commercial. So I was so disappointed in that. Somehow, though, I began to gravitate uh, more to these. And what really moved it along was. Uh, at one point, they started a series called Shock Theater Matinee, which was Saturday afternoons. Well, the, uh, the movies that started at 11.15 at night were way, way too late, basically, for me. Uh, although I came up with an ingenious idea, I would go to bed early, me and my sister, before my parents had gotten home. And I would set my alarm for, like, 11.30 at night. and. Then I'd get up and watch the movie and then go back to bed. My, my parents were not totally uh, enamored of this idea, to put it mildly. But it was, I, it was, I was starting to get some, some more kind of interest in all this sort of thing. Finally, uh, what, what it really did more than anything else, uh, get me going, was the, the classic illustrated comic books. Because these were the, the, you know, the great classic stories. And uh, I was exposed to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, they they actually did not have Dracula in that series, but they also had a number of Sherlock Holmes pieces, and one of which was The Hound of the Baskervilles, which, as I said in a previous broadcast, a podcast, was not available uh, as a single uh, single book back in that era. Strange as that is, and that is all part of the overreaction to things that were considered too too scary. But um, I can remember vividly uh, coming home from school. And I guess what I, I had uh, figured out how to do a mail order of these things. Um, much of Classic Illustrated selling was was mail order, and it was fifteen cents, and you'd send in fifteen cents and another ten cents for postage and handling or whatever, and uh, they'd send you back uh, the issues that you were requesting. So I'm I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan at this point, and I'd been watching a, a so-so TV series that. It was in, around there with Ronald Howard, the son of Leslie Howard, as Holmes. More to the point, I was watching the Universal Sherlock Holmes films uh, with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. 
And these were getting over into the kind of crossing over uh, already on the borderline of horror with titles like The Scarlet Claw and The, the Spider Woman, things like this. And uh, they were they were hokey in, in different ways, but uh, but the atmosphere was great. And the, uh, the the actors were great. Not only was Basil Rathbone and Andrew Bruce terrific, but George Zuko, who I mentioned in that Mad Monster movie, uh, he appeared in several. He was Professor Moriarty in one of the first ones. So anyway, uh, to get back to my story here, I remember coming home from school, and I was probably in fifth grade or something, and I had I had splurred on my allowance and ordered two titles. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And I remember coming home and sure enough, uh, this one day, here, here was a package, uh, here the wrapped up set of them. And uh, they were rolled up in a, in a paper kind of container. And I'm trying to get them open without, without ripping them, but I'm getting really excited here. And my mother remembers this. And sure enough, here was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it was the title was The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes for the other one, but the cover was clearly The Hound of the Baskervilles. And you opened it up, and that was the story that was there. So with those two comic books really excited me in a way that I hadn't been before, and, and kind of overcame the, um, the initial fear I had, if you will. But I decided this tradition, and, and certainly watching the films of the same, so these things all kind of converged. And also in the late 1950s, Hammer films in England began coming out with uh, elaborate productions of classic horror stories, including uh, they did one of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, they did The Hound of the Baskervilles, they did Frankenstein, they did Dracula. All of these were coming out. So I went from being scared to being intrigued uh, to being somewhat attracted to really enjoying these. And what is it about about these these stories, whether they're in comic books or movies or, or whatever else, that made them so appealing and so interesting? I say there are two things. Uh, the first is the reality of fear. That fear is a basic human response, and we all know what it's like to be afraid. And these stories deal with our fears, and whether it's uh, Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde or Edgar Allan Poe. They had a num number of Edgar Allan Poe uh, comic versions in the Classics Illustrated series. Whatever it was in these things, it dealt with, with, with fears. And um, my sister and I would be home alone a lot of times. And uh, you could always be afraid of, is there something in the basement? Have you heard? Is there a sound? Is there something out of this by the side door? Fear is a basic component of life. And uh, what uh, these stories did is they could externalize those fears by putting them in a, in a different kind of context and a context that was outside of our own personal experience, a context that was just sort of appealing uh, and a way of kind of demystifying whatever it was that seemed fearful. But the second aspect beyond just showing us fears was dealing with the whole reality of evil. The problem of evil is the most serious, difficult question in all of human life and culture. And there's a religious aspect to this. God is good. God is gracious. God is all powerful. God created the world. But yet 
Why is there so much evil? And what the Christian tradition makes very clear is evil is a choice. It's not an inherent power, but it's a choice that begins with Adam and Eve and goes on throughout all of history. And in fact, really, Jesus comes into the world, and I began to get this picture. It's not just to pay the penalty for sin, which is the classic answer, but it's almost more important, it's to defeat the powers of evil. And horror films, horror stories, rightly told, uh, deal with both the reality of fear and the power of evil. And the power of evil, really, from a, from a biblical standpoint, is, is genuine and is real, but also can't, uh, can't be victorious. Evil is, is ultimately going to be destroyed uh, by God's action in Jesus Christ, certainly in the Christian tradition, there's that. And that's the, certainly true in the, in the Jewish tradition as well about just the destruction of evil, that God is ultimately merciful and good and, all, and powerful. And evil exists because it's been chosen by fallible human beings. But God is able to overcome the fallacies of human nature, as well as the reality of, of the demonic forces. And so I think in uh, terms of the, we've mentioned this in our podcast, the very first supernatural horror film in American history is the 1931 Dracula. And right from the very beginning, and uh, it's a very old fashioned movie by today's standards, but still, it's got a lot of atmosphere and has Bela Lugosi's very memorable performance as Dracula. But right from the very beginning, and this is something we have talked about in other podcasts, but it was also what attracted me. Uh, we see the power of the cross, even with people who don't realize its power. So this is very important. It's not that the, the power of the cross is there if we believe in it, kind of like Peter Pan with Tinkerbell. If you believe in Tinkerbell, it will come back to life. No, the power of the cross, the power of Christ, is independent of any human agency. And uh, one of the very classic scenes of that in that film is Renfield, the unsuspecting guest who's having dinner, uh, is you know cutting cutting some bread with a knife, and his hand slips and he cuts his his thumb, and blood comes out. Well, of course, the Dracula, who's standing just behind him, trying to, he's not actually sharing the food, but he's serving it to him. Dracula sees the blood and starts coming toward it. And just as he's getting right on top of Renfield, a, a crucifix, which a woman in the village had given him, uh, falls out. And when Dracula sees that, he turns away, you know, hiding his face. And Renfield, who's clueless, just says, oh, it's just a, it's just a slight, slight scratch, thinking he's upset by the blood. No, he's upset by the fact that there's a cross. And uh, that's been watered down, and I think, with uh, really serious consequences. Uh, but I, I would say a, a really good horror film deals with fears that we all have. Uh, uh, Val Luton was famous for the, uh, having these jump moments occur in his films, always famous scene of a in uh, cat people where a girl is, is is walking home alone in the in the dark in central park of all places and being followed by this uh, panther and then all of a sudden you hear the this whoosh sound 
which is uh, the door of a bus opening. And she quickly gets on the bus. But but that when you first hear that whoosh sound, you're you're on the edge of your seat anyway. You really jump. So these are fears. Walking home alone, you know, that's the fear of the hound of the Baskervilles, that you're walking home alone in the dark and something is coming after you. And that can be moved around in Jaws, another example of that, the idea of the ocean. So that that sense of uh, of evil being confronted and defeated is, I think, a critical part of this. And it's it's also what makes these films encouraging. These are not films that you should be discouraged by. Uh, they should be should, now. Some of them are that. I granted there are too many films where evil does seem to win out, and uh, or is is there's excessive gore and and loss and so forth. But that's not the way it ought to be. And so this is where, starting with the classic illustrated comic books and then moving on to the Bible, you have these stages at first of, of a literary stage and then a spiritual stage. And with this idea that uh, evil can never be victorious. Uh, I remember interviewing as part of our podcast, which is uh, Sarah Karloff, Boris Karloff's uh, daughter. And Boris Karloff was probably the premier horror film actor of the 20th century. And talking to her about this, and, and she made this very clear, yeah, that, that her father, uh, you know, in all of the, everything from Frankenstein out that he appeared in, always wanted to lift up this theme that evil must be defeated. Uh, evil cannot endure. And uh, uh, in, in several cases, in both the Frankenstein films that he first appeared in, they, they changed the ending uh, to make sure that the, the protagonist, that Frankenstein and his, and his, and his wife, uh, are safe and that the evil has been destroyed and, and, and they're, they're all right. So that's what I find really you know, fascinating and indeed encouraging. And you know, Terrence Fisher, who's a, one of my favorite directors and I've talked about here as well, uh, for him, this was such a big deal. He has these really st striking images of the cross in his films, and the um, uh, hands of a of a windmill get pulled in such a way that they form the shadow of a cross. Peter Cushing takes two candlesticks and forms a cross and drives uh, Christopher Lee's Dracula into the sunlight, where where he perishes at least for the time being, but where he's clearly defeated. So when we look at the world around us, where there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of evil, how do we orient ourselves you know, to not lose heart, to not become discouraged, to not become uh, down, downhearted? And I think we do this by the fact that we know that, that while evil is certainly real and people, and the Bible says, uh, men and women choose evil to darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That uh, there's a lot of, of negative choices that, that people make, and those open up the doorways to evil and uh, war. We see, hear the terrible things going on in the Ukraine. Uh, people choose evil, but evil can never be victorious. Evil never has the last word. So... I would say that that's why I find horror films really appealing is because 
they can get that message across in a way that no other film genre does. And I think it's one reason why horror films have been steadily popular throughout the whole history of cinema. Musicals, gangster films, westerns come and go. But the horror film, as far back as when Thomas Edison made the first version of Frankenstein in 1910, uh, up to the present, uh, and even and and we can see horror films that that I think still have uh, important messages about the problem of evil. Um, Get Out is one. Uh, A Quiet Place is another one. We still have some very very illuminating and intriguing horror films. Uh, and we have some that, that are just exploitative. I, right, I, I'm not going to go along with all, all the splatter films of the 80s um, with uh, Halloween and um, Friday the 13th and all of that. Uh, those, those were not ones I found, I found appealing. But there are other ones, and they continue to be made, uh, that really affirm confidence and hope. And this is, these are two attributes that people need. When we're looking at the news or we're seeing situations in our own lives, what gives us confidence? What gives us hope? May not be anything we can see immediately, but we have to hold on to this idea that the power of good, the power of God will finally not always immediately, but we'll finally win out and uh, evil is defeated. And eventually, uh, the Bible tells us Satan and the power and hell and all of that are all going to be totally eliminated, thrown into the, uh, the lake of fire in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. So that is something that gives us hope that there, there will be a new creation. There will be a new Jerusalem. Uh, there will be all kinds of positive results that God will dwell with it with mortal mortal people and uh, there is a hope for not only for the world but for individuals in the world and that hope comes from faith so uh, yeah right there you can obviously see where being a minister and dealing with these horror films and horror stories uh, really overlap so that's uh, that's enough for now that's just a little bit about my own personal background. We'll hear more from Gwendolyn and James and also from uh, my daughter Elizabeth is going to be sharing some things in the near future. So um, as I say, that's all for now. And we look forward to next time with 10 times the terror. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to It's 10 times the terror. The podcast. One of my favorite films ever. (laughs) Let's do that for again. Thank you for listening to 10 times the terror. This podcast would not be possible without listeners like you. You can find out more about our podcast by visiting our website, 10timestheterror.com. That's 10xtheterror.com.